Good morning and welcome to this service of worship at the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand with me as we uh, worship together through the call to worship and remain standing for the invocation and the hymn to follow. Please read responsively with me. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. The peace that Christ gives to us guides us in the decisions we make, for it is to this peace that God has called us together into one body. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. With his own body, he broke down the walls of separation. By his death on the cross, Christ destroyed our divisions. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. Let us pray. Father, as we come into this time of spring, we operate in faith because sometimes the evidence of spring is not apparent. Help us to operate in that faith the same way we do in our lives with you, remembering that we can rely on you and your word and your promise. In the season of Lent, help us both to anticipate with joy a celebration of resurrection and to appreciate uh, the uh, sense of death and the sacrificial death that you made. Be with us in our time of worship today. Make it both sober and joyful, all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. We're glad that you are here in this uh, service of worship today, and want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning as well. I've got a cold, so I'm trying to be careful. I've been, right. I got this hand. I'm using this hand stuff. I'm using Just a couple of things I want to bring to your attention, uh, announcements in the bulletin. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will be entering uh, Holy Week and moving into Easter. And uh, there's some special activities that will be going on that week, Monday, Thursday. That evening, we will uh, gather for a service, a special time of remembering that last, uh, the Last Supper, the last night of Christ's life. Uh, also, then on Good Friday, we'll be hosting a Journey to the Cross in the gym. We'll be hearing more about that. We've done this last couple of years. And, of course, Easter morning, a great celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And uh, we will, as we've done for many, many years, uh, offer baptism on that morning. We have some who are uh, already ready to be baptized and preparing. And if you would like to be baptized, please let me know in the next week or so. And uh, we will include you in the class of preparation for that great event in the life of our church. Also, I want to remind you uh, that the uh, WKFM children have put a... Uh, a jar in the back corner of the foyer to help collect funds for the youth group participating in the 30-hour uh, famine, that uh, the, all the funds will go to World Relief and their ministry around the world. And if you're passing by and you have some coins or some bills and drop into that, that would be greatly appreciated as we continue to help others in need. morning. My name is Doug Maley. I'm a member of the Church Board of Elders. You'll notice in your bulletin this morning that there's an announcement regarding the pastoral call vote that will take place in two weeks on April 6th. Every four years as a congregation, we're asked to extend the call of our senior pastor, Wes Oden, and that time has come again. This is our opportunity to affirm Pastor Wes and his ministry here in the church But this vote is as much about us as it is about him, because it's really our commitment to be an integral part of that ministry and to do the work that God has called us all together to do in this and through this church. So in that spirit, the elders wholeheartedly, and I repeat, wholeheartedly recommend to you that Pastor West be extended an additional four-year call on April 6th. The vote will take place on that day. It'll happen around the morning services here at the church. The election is, the balloting is open to community and covenant members. There is also uh, the possibility for you to cast an absentee ballot if you don't think that you will be here on the 6th of April, and the information about that is in the announcement in your bulletin. So the elders ask you to be in prayer and encourage you to participate in this uh, balloting. And we thank you. Let us affirm together our Christian faith through this historic Apostles' Creed, which can be found in the inside cover of your hymnal. 
Let us affirm together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day rose again, dead, descended into heaven, and seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, from the New International Version. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent the pests from devouring your crops, and the the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then... All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Reigning King, at your cross, we find the beginning of each of our stories, sinners in need of God's grace. We confess that in our pride we neglect it, and in our judgment we withhold it. Forgive us, Lord, for the relationships in which we focus on past sins instead of present redemption, in getting revenge instead of seeking forgiveness. For excluding rather than welcoming those who reflect your image. For worrying about gaining power rather than embracing humble sacrifice. By your strength, may we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, but through the eyes of grace and redemption. Merciful Lord, forgive us for the walls we have built out of hate the boundaries we have created out of differences, and the lines we have drawn out of fear, 
and empower us to live as ambassadors of light in the darkness of this world. And may we embrace the words that empower our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen. Please rise as the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offering and remain standing for prayer.
Pray with me. Father, content us to let the world go by, to know nor gain, no gain nor loss, for really it is all yours, and you have entrusted it to us miraculously. Give us hearts to understand that this is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Contemplating the cross, we come together to offer our prayers. As we pray together, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son who comes and dies for the sins of the world, including our sins. It is amazing to consider that we are healed by the punishment that he faced. That we are set free from our sins by his death. 
as undeserving people, we come in gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have done. Father, in the power of the cross, we ask that you will heal our diseases, be present in our grief. We pray today for people who feel an overwhelming sense of loss, who live with a daily sense of dread or who may feel overwhelmed by life and see no way out of it. Make your presence real to them. We pray for people who are dealing with injury, and disease, surgery, treatments, all the other kinds of difficulties that come to these fragile bodies. We pray you'd pour out your healing grace upon Bruce, Jeannie, Donna, Bev, Edna, Linda, Micah, Bob, Bill, Crystal, Emily, and others who are on our minds and hearts today. Father, sometimes we are overwhelmed by fear and worry and doubt. Help us to see your goodness when it is difficult to see. And in our struggles with each other, fill us with the grace of forgiveness, patience, mercy, truth, hope. We continue to pray for our world, for people who live with no idea where their next meal may come from or where to find clean drinking water, people who have been displaced from their homes and live in grave danger, people who live in fear and uncertainty because of violence and war, for our brothers and sisters who face the daily threat of opposition and persecution, Father, we pray that you will bring your spirit to bear in grace and mercy. In those places of utter despair, may the hope of Christ be seen through your spirit and through your people. Father, we pray that you will turn us from self-centered living to Christ-centered living. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in this world and to be involved as your servants. Use us to touch the lives of others. Let the Spirit of Christ be on each of us, that we may bear witness to Christ, in whose name we offer our prayer, remembering the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, beginning with chapter, in chapter 20 with verses 45 through 47, and then continuing into chapter 21, the first four verses. Let us stand together for the reading of the gospel. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everybody gets nervous when you start talking about money, especially in church. Someone said to me, really, you want to talk about money just a couple weeks before you have a vote coming up? Was that wise? You know, church has a reputation sometimes for just being just concerned about money. People make accusations. It's all the church thinks about. They just want our money. And quite frankly, there are times in history when the church has acted that way. Where it it seemed very clear that the primary reason the church existed was to take money from people. And because of that, we have gone to the other extreme and now we don't talk about money much at all. We are afraid of offending people. It's private. It's personal. It's, it's not a, uh, an appropriate issue to talk about. But when you read the scripture, you find all kinds of times when it talks about money. Just looking at the words like rich, poor, gifts, giving, money, it's over 700 times in scripture. Those words are used. And we may not talk about it a lot, but God is very interested in talking to us about money. Because there is something about what we do with our possessions, how we accumulate them, how we distribute them. There's something about that that is directly tied to our spiritual life and our journey with Christ. And one of the examples that we find here is the places where we find the scriptures talking about money is this passage we've just read about the woman, the widow in the temple. As I understand it, the temple had, in the court of women, had 13 receptacles and they sort of looked like trumpets, so they called them trumpets. And people would put their money into those. They were made of metal. And, of course, in those days, they didn't have money made of bills like we do. It was all coinage. And the more more value a coin had, the heavier it was. And so if you threw a coin in that was worth a lot, it made a lot of noise. And if you threw in a coin that didn't weigh much, it didn't make much noise. And it was a means that people would use for, for others to say, wow, look at them. They're giving a lot. Clang, clang. And, they, you know, of course, you don't just clang it and run. You clang and stand because you want people to know, look what I gave. The people who give and run are the people like this widow whose gifts, these two coins, mean the word means thin ones. And the two of them together don't make up half a penny. And I could almost see her trying to, as surreptitiously as possible, drop those coins in so that no one knows and no one will even hear that little tiny sound of these thin little basically worthless coins and Jesus says she's got it she understands the economics of the kingdom better than everyone else who's come in and made loud noises with their gifts now 
It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would say these kinds of things. He does it all the time. You know, if you want to be first, you should be last. If you want to lead, you have to serve. If you want to be in my kingdom, you become like a little child. This is the message that Jesus keeps sending over and over again. He keeps turning everything on its head. And economics is one of those things as well. The world, the world of economics is, is run by the rich. And it's run for the rich. And that's the way it's always been. The rich make the decisions. And, and consequently, by and large, the rich benefit from the decisions that are made about economics. How many times have all of us thought to ourselves, man, they just, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? It seems to be the way of culture. It's the way things operate. No one says, hey, let's ask the poor how to figure out what we should do next in the economy. And yet, Jesus says, we're going to turn that around. We're going to turn that on its head. And the people who are poor, this woman who is poor, the poorest of the poor, is going to teach you about what it means to understand economics in my kingdom. Now, Jesus isn't applauding her poverty. He's applauding her generosity or sacrifice. He's not saying to us, the goal is to be poor. That there's something inherently spiritual about being poor. But I think he is asking us, would we be willing to be poor? Are we willing to be generous enough, sacrificial enough, that we end up poor? Is our heart tuned that way? At the same time, Scripture is very clear that the more we have, the more risk we are at making money and possessions an idol. Though you can make it an idol whether you have a lot or a little. But it seems like the more we have, the more it gets a hold of us. And the more it constrains us and the more it enslaves us. I read about a guy who went to his pastor. I don't know if this is a true story or not. But he went to the pastor and he said, I'm having trouble tithing lately. And he's, the pastor said, well, what's wrong? And he said, well, when I was making $250 a week, I gave a $25 tithe. It was great. When I, my salary went to $500 a week and I gave a $50 tithe, that was okay. But now I'm making $5,000 a week and a $500 tithe is killing me. I don't think I can do this. Will you pray for me? And the pastor says, sure, I'll pray for you. He says, Lord, please reduce Joe's income back to $500 a week so he feels a lot better about giving his tithe. I'm not sure that's the prayer he wanted prayed. There is something about the more we have, the more we want to hang on to it. But it can get us anytime, anywhere. And the question is, continually confronting us, is not how little can I give and still stay in good graces with God? But rather, how much can I give and still live. That's the attitude. That's the spirit 
that we see in this woman who comes and drops in her two little worthless coins. You know, her coins are not going to make a bit of difference to the temple. The temple's not going to stop operating if she doesn't put those two little coins in. The temple's only going to continue if the rich keep giving their gifts. They need those gifts for the temple to continue. So it's not as though Jesus is saying, you know, we don't want any rich people giving gifts. He does not condemn the rich people for their gifts. He's simply saying they're given enough. The issue is not so much even what they give as what they don't give. What's left? And he's saying they give out of their great wealth. And what they give is a drop in the bucket compared to what they have. She gives everything. It has very little, if anything, left. And the, the economics of the kingdom are about sacrifice and generosity. Because it's when we, are, when we have a spirit and a heart of generosity and sacrifice, then we start understanding what the kingdom of God is about. It, we, be, we get set free from the bondage of materialism and money that continually wants to enslave us. It's the only way to be set free is to commit ourselves to be generous, to be sacrificially generous. What ends up happening is how we handle money will reveal a lot about how we feel about other people. We read the end of chapter 20. It says that the religious leaders who wear these long robes that you know, the important people wear and they say these long prayers are stealing homes out from under widows. Why? Because they are enslaved by money. Money controls them. Everything about their life is getting more. Is it because they have none? No, they have more money than most people. They want more. And they're willing to take homes from people who have nothing in order to get more. You think about the great financial scandals of even just the last 10, 15 years. I mean, they were not perpetrated by people who have nothing. They were perpetrated by people who have more than they know what to do with. You know, Bernie Madoff didn't, didn't take that money because he couldn't eke by and didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He just wanted more. He invested himself so heavily, he, kept, he wanted more. And Ken Lay and the others at Enron, they were exceedingly rich. They wanted more. And they stole from people who had very little. And we may not do those kinds of things, but there is an attitude of spirit that's naturally in our hearts that instead of of using what we have to help people in need, we use people to get more of what we want. And Christ is calling us to the spirit of generosity that's asking not how much can I keep and how much can I convince people to give to me, but how much can I give away to others? And when I see people in need, instead of running from them because we're afraid they might take something of what we have, we're thinking, how can I possibly give away more 
to help them. At the same time, how we handle money speaks deeply to our view of God and how we feel about God. They are connected. This passage from Malachi that we read, God accuses Israel of robbing him, and they say, how are we robbing you? What are we possibly doing? He says, what do you mean, how are you robbing me? You're not bringing your tithes and offerings into my house. And because of that, they end up in exile. They, they are, their spiritual life and what they do with what they have are intimately connected. It's a sign. And in fact, I'm convinced that what we do with money and our spirit or attitude of generosity or not is one of the most profound thermometers of our spiritual condition. It's not the only one, but it is a significant one. Because if we aren't willing to be generous, if we aren't willing to, to sacrifice, it says a couple of things. One, it says that we, aren't really, we don't really believe that what we have is from God. We have to hang on to it because we got it. We earned it. It's mine. God didn't give it to me. And so there's no sense of gratitude, no sense of thanksgiving for what God has given us. And second, we have no trust of God. We, we can't bring ourselves to believe that if we give away something, God will supply whatever hole that creates for us. So we see this direct connection. And how we, our attitude, how we handle money, it reveals what's in our hearts toward God. Ultimately, it brings us back to the cross. Because on the cross, God, give, God presents us with the, the greatest sacrifice of the world. This is not just about giving money. This is life. And everything that's wrapped up in what the cross means of God coming, becoming flesh and living among us and willingly going to the cross for our sins and being generous, living with this attitude of generosity and sacrifice, is, is in many ways it is simply an acknowledgement of gratitude. It is simply a way of, of expressing gratitude to God for what he has done for us. And the God who would willingly sacrifice himself surely is trustworthy enough that whatever we give away, he'll take care of us. I was reading recently the, um, the book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. It's really a fascinating book, and he, he tells stories about how God just put into his heart a, a passion for giving. And uh, he has a gift for giving, I can tell you. And you read the stories, you think, wow, that is just so far beyond me. And what interested me is that uh, we had a, I, I knew someone who knew him. And so we talked about it, and I said, is all this stuff true? And he said, that's exactly who he is. He, he, this is exactly, he's the guy he writes about. And he tells all kinds of stories about how, you know, God prompted he and his wife to give away a house to people who needed it. Now, God supplied them with a different house. 
And they gave away probably more than a dozen cars. And just, you know, as, as God, they're so sensitive and have this attitude of generosity that they're looking, they're just continually looking for people to give things to. And he said one time, a God, God surprised him and he said, said Robert, I want you, you to sell that van you have. And he said, I argue with the Lord because, Lord, we don't sell any of this stuff. We give it away. We, we're, not try, we're, we're not making money off of it. He said, Robert, I want you to sell it. And we sell it for $12,000. And he and his wife wrestled with it, but they both really sensed that's what God was telling them to do. So they said, all right, we'll sell the van. And the next day they went to church and the guy at their church said, hey, Robert, you ever think of selling that van? So I'll give you $12,000 for it. <laughs> okay, Lord. So he sold the van. He said, I don't know what to do with the money. Put it in the bank. A few weeks later, they were on a mission trip. I think we were down in Costa Rica. And the missionary there was driving around in this, this van that was, they were sure at any moment the wheels were going to fall off and the thing was just going to disintegrate. And he said, it scared him to death driving around in this thing. He said, why don't you get another van? He said, I don't have money to get another van. He said, but I, I have my eye on one and it would be perfect for our ministry. I just need some money. He said, how much do you need? $12,000. I got a van. And it's story after story of this life. And his comment is, God created us as Christians particularly, and God has gifted us and called us not to be reservoirs, but to be rivers. Not to be people who, who, are always, who get a vision for getting, but a vision for giving. And we're continually thinking, you know, how can I give more of what I have? How can I, how can I give to people who have need? Lord, I don't know if I can do it or not, but if you want me to do it, I'm there. How can we create that kind of attitude, that kind of spirit that is looking for ways to give when most of us are thinking about looking for ways to get? And to be a river instead of a reservoir. He talks in, in, in this book about uh, what he calls the ladder of giving. And in, in his opinion, there are three rungs to this ladder. There's tithes, there's offerings, and there's extravagant offerings. And I think there's some value to thinking in those terms. I, I do think that there is value in us committing first and foremost to being people who tithe. And I know some people say, well, that's an Old Testament concept. Well, there are lots of things in the Old Testament that we still do and are an important part of how we, how we live as Christians. And the very least we can do is to want to give to God 10%. And I'm convinced, and not, not everybody agrees with me, but I'm convinced that the tithe's primary purpose is to, is to support the church. I think back to this image of the widow in the temple. I don't know if she knows, but I suspect that lots of people are aware that the temple mechanism is pretty corrupt. You know, it doesn't take a genius to see how the the high priests and the teachers of the law are bilking widows and they are stealing and they don't care a thing about the people by and large. I mean, it isn't hard to see. But even if they don't know that, Jesus knows. Jesus sees it clearly. And you would think he might go to this woman and say, hey, whoa, 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 don't give them your money. 
Don't put that money in there. They've rejected me. They've turned from me. Don't give that to them. That's a waste of money. But he doesn't. In fact, he calls out what she does and says, that's great. And if Jesus encourages giving to this corrupt institution, then how much more to the church, which is not perfect, but hopefully not corrupt. And it's when we give to the church, there is, we see things are, we, things are able to happen. Because we give to the church, we have ministries that operate. We have things that happen with our children on Wednesday nights and Sunday school and children's church and junior church and the youth group activities. And, and, and we train our children and our youth and we help each other and we have worship services. And even the mundane things of, of the paying the electric bill to turn on the lights and have heat when it's cold and snowing outside like it's doing right now. And, and all these things that, that we take for granted because we give to the church. And I mean, it's how I was raised, but I, I think that, that the tithe is, is how, we, how we maintain the ministry of the church. And because we give to the church, the church is able to give over $100,000 to organizations and people who are sharing the gospel around us and around the world in ways that we couldn't do. But I don't think it stops with tithes. Maybe the issue is that God wants to, to encourage us, to challenge us, to move beyond that into giving tithes and offerings. And those offerings we give to support missionaries and we give to support organizations that are sharing the gospel in a variety of ways all over the world and in our backyards. But the thing that I think is important is that sometimes we want to jump so high up the ladder that we fall off. I think it's just start where we are. If, if tithing has been an issue and not doing that, then that's the first place to start. Maybe it's 5% or a few percent, but it's something beyond what we're doing. And I recognize that some of you sitting here have very little income, especially if you're a college student, high school student. You don't have much income. But I know from my own life and in talking with so many people, that's the perfect time to begin the the habit, the duty of giving. And maybe if, if tithing is not the issue, maybe the next step is offerings or it's being offerings it's to be just more generous, more extravagant. But we're asking God, Lord, how much could you encourage me to give? How much could I trust you to give instead of asking God, please help me hang on to what I have? To live with open hands instead of clenched fists. And sometimes we think of giving as a duty. And it is an act of obedience. But it's sort of like the duty of eating. You know, we have to eat to live. If we don't eat, we we will die. We all need to eat. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy eating. And we like, the, sometimes one of the most enjoyable things is preparing the meal and sitting down with family and friends and we eat. And, and food is something for most of us, we don't, dread, we don't dread a meal, we anticipate a meal because of what the meal means and what it's going to, to, to be for us. And I think if we can think of giving as a duty in that same way, 
that it's, it's not something that we dread. It's something we anticipate. Because the more generous we are, the more open our hearts are. And the more open our hearts are, the more God will fill us with his spirit and, and bless us. And it doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to bless us with a lot more of what we have. It's not, a, it's not a formula where we say, okay, God, I'm giving you a dollar. I'm expecting 10 back. We just give. And as we give, as we create an, an attitude of, of giving, God supplies for us so that we can give more. And what we find is that there is, there is little more enjoyable, little, little more exciting than being able to give to people who are in need. And to be people who are, who are rivers through whom God gives his blessings to other people. John Ortberg says when he talks about money in his church, he often talks to people about their wallets. And sometimes he says, I have them get the wallet out and look at it and look in it to see if anybody's in there or what, you know, look through it and... At first service, someone said to me, I was waiting for you to say, what's in your wallet? Like the television commercial. But they said, really, if you look at it, it's just a little piece of leather. But that piece of leather is representative for so many people of everything we think in terms of success and value and worth. I, I know a guy who, who w- was raised in, in abject poverty. And when he became adult and, and, an adult and he, and he got a good job, he carried around with him a $100 bill in his wallet everywhere he went. And when he paid something or opened his wallet, he wanted to make sure everyone saw that $100 bill because that was his way of telling them, I'm successful. I carry around a $100 bill in my wallet. And it's true of a lot of us. It's the credit cards we carry or it's, it's the, the money that we have. It represents for so many of us success and value and worth. And, and we can get sucked into it so easily. And it represents the economy of the culture. But the problem is the economy of the culture doesn't lead to what we think it leads to. The economy of the culture leads to fear that what we have, we might lose. It leads to worry about what we have being taken away from us. It leads to stress and pressure that we have to keep getting more and more in order to maintain our lifestyle. The economics of the culture don't make life easier and better. They make it harder. But the economics of Christ's kingdom set us free. Because if we lose it, it was God's money to begin with. If it's taken away, it was God's possessions to begin with. And if we really believe that God is who he says he is, somehow, some way, he will supply what we need. And the truth of the matter is, we all know this to be true in other areas of life, that the more we learn to trust God, the more joy we experience.
So my question for each of us, as you think about this little piece of leather in your wallet, your pocket, or your purse, or your bag, or wherever you keep it, does it reflect the economics of the culture or the economics of Christ and the kingdom? That leads to joy and freedom and blessing and life. Heavenly Father, you know this is a hard word for me, for us. There's so much of our security that we put in what we have. We pray that you will help us to see beyond that to you. Lord, this morning, speak into our hearts about one thing, one way, one means, one act, a step of sacrificial generosity that will lead us more and more to freedom and the joy of your spirit. Give us courage to take the step. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.